Let us pray. Father, as we come before you again and we turn to your word, we trust that in these words, in the pages, that we find what it is that we need most, and that is Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Maybe some of you are familiar with this uh, series of jokes that went around a few years ago. It was called, How Many People Does It Take to Change a Light Bulb? And one of them I always remember was, How Many Lutherans Does It Take to Change a Light Bulb? The answer is, Change! A lot of people don't like change very much. You remember back a few years ago when Coke decided to come out with new Coke? Didn't last very long. I also remember, and you see the picture up here, when A&E Network first hit the airwaves. Uh, A&E stands for Arts and Entertainment, and the idea that A&E would be like PBS, the public broadcasting system, <coughs> without the extended fundraising appeals, But it wasn't very long. They decided to have these rather selective and sophisticated shows, but it wasn't very long before they found out, next screen, that the sophisticated programming, like An Evening with George Bernard Shaw, could not draw the same sort of ratings as the reruns of Murder, She Wrote. It wasn't long after that that A&E began to schedule programming to a much broader, less selective audience, including such shows as Dog the Bounty Hunter and Monsters-in-Law. What happened was viewership continued to increase, ad revenue increased, but A&E is absolutely nothing like it started out to be. I'd also venture to say that many of you that watch MTV these days, that's the little logo you see, Some of you have no idea whatsoever, those of you who watch it today, that the network used to show music videos 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. In fact, some of you probably don't even know what the M stands for. But it originally started out as music television. It's like a lot of you watch ESPN probably don't even have any idea what ESPN stands for. Kind of interesting. Even though MTV is rather successful today, what it has become does not resemble what it originally set out to be. Now, many of you know, maybe if you're in the business world, you know that a business that loses sight of its original vision in the quest of, let's say, greater profits is something uh, we could become ourselves. But it's in the church when we start out being one thing and becoming another where things begin to get dangerous. Whenever a ministry, whenever a church, whenever a Christian drifts away from what it was called to be, it's a tragedy. And Paul is addressing a tragedy today here in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He's talking about Christians. You heard what Matt said before uh, about Christians who abandon their faith to follow these deceiving spirits and started believing what he called the doctrine of devils. Now, that's kind of the worst kind of losing your focus. And Paul explains what he means by these doctrines of devils here in verses 2 and 3. He said, such teachings come through 
hypocritical liars. Now, I always love that word hypocritical in the Greek. It's hypocrites. It means to have two faces. This teaching comes through a bunch of two-faced liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry, order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. Now, earlier, if you've been here at all of these messages, Paul said that these kinds of teachers devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies. And he said that they promote controversies rather than God's work. And in this chapter, what Paul is really talking about, he calls them godless myths, or what we might even call old wives' tales. Back when I was teaching doctrine classes at Lutheran High School in the Chicagoland area, I had the students read a book called Mere Christianity, written by C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis warned about something in, in that uh, book. He warned about something called Christianity and dot, dot, dot. Christianity and. It was the tendency to package Christianity together with other movements or other ideas or other philosophies. For example, Christianity and conservative politics. Con- Christianity and socialism. Or Christianity and Marxism, believe it or not. Or Christianity and positive thinking. Now, this didn't just start in the 1980s, 90s, or the, the 2000s. This has been going on since the early days of the church. This is why we have so many creeds written. The Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, Athanasian Creed. Because people were taking Christianity and something else. From the beginning of time... People have tried to hijack the gospel of Jesus Christ and blend it with all kinds of nonsense. For example, in the early church, it was Christianity and you must be circumcised to belong to the church. Or it was Christianity and you have to follow this particular diet. Or Christianity and you need to possess a certain amount of knowledge. That was Gnosticism in the New Testament. Now, these distortions of the truth watered down the gospel and prevented people from trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. The Bible teaches us, though, that there is really only one way to be saved, and that's in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. There is one God and mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself up as a ransom for all men. Now, what I want to stress this morning is this. Any doctrine, any theology, any religious teaching that messes with that truth, the truth that salvation comes through faith in Christ alone, is an aberration of the gospel. And in Paul's word, anything that mitigates against that is a doctrine of devils. Now, I was reading a blog this last week in which a a pastor was talking about what it takes to have a saving faith. Now, when I got to that point, you know, what does it take to have a saving faith? I thought, I'm talking about that tomorrow. I felt like sending him back that Bible passage. But, what he, but this is a fellow Missouri sinner like me and you. And, uh, and I was going to read his whole blog. And what he said was that you must believe this doctrinal distinction over this doctrinal distinction 
you need to have this theological view and not that theological view. And if you don't believe what we believe, then you can't possibly have genuine saving faith. Now, i got to tell you, as I was reading about it, I, I, I really agreed. I fully agreed with all the doctrines that he was talking about. But he came dangerously close, I thought, to saying that when it comes down to it, we're not really saved by faith in Christ Jesus. We're saved by Christ and a certain kind of knowledge. Now, I got to thinking, since I'm, I'm, I'm planning now for... Uh, a week again in Angola prison. And I, I was writing some letters the other day, answering some mail to some of the guys down there. And I got to thinking about these guys. Many of the men, many of the 5,400 men down there uh, don't have much of an education past maybe 8th or ninth grade. There are a great number of them that I've had in classes over the years that cannot read or write. I don't know very many of those guys down there that could pass an introductory level Christology course. But I know an awful lot of guys who have a faith in Jesus. And that faith in Jesus is deep and strong and solid and secure. It is their faith in Jesus Christ that saves them, not their ability to pass some sort of a Christology exam. And I think the same thing works for you and me. We are saved how? By Christ alone. We are not saved by your politics. I read enough of that garbage lately, you know, as if to say Republicans are Christians and Democrats are not. I don't know whoever came up with that nonsense. It has nothing to do with your church membership. Just because you got your name on a list somewhere doesn't mean diddly. It has nothing to do with your self-discipline, that you haven't done A, B, C, D. It is not your vast and impressive knowledge or your accumulation of degrees or whatever. It is what? Your faith in Christ and Christ alone. Now, Paul went so far as to say that if anyone preaches anything other than that, anything other than the gospel, this way of salvation... He said, if anybody's doing this, let that person be eternally condemned. Let him be, he says in the book of Galatians in the Greek, let him be anathema. I mean, he is to be set outside the church. And for this reason, Paul is encouraging Timothy, and I hope that you understand he's also encouraging you and me, teach these things, he said, that I'm telling you about in this letter. The eternal Souls of men and women depend on your faithfulness to the gospel message. Don't confuse them. All they need to know is there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all men. It is strictly by grace through faith that you are saved. It is not and something else. That's why Paul goes on in verse 7. He says, have nothing to do with these godless myths. And old wives' tales, rather, train yourself to be godly. I like that phrase. Train yourself to be godly. You know, just like an athlete uh, trains to compete in a sporting event, a believer needs to train himself or herself to live a godly life. And so you get there by practicing. What is that old joke? The guy comes up to somebody on the street corner in New York and says, How do you get to Carnegie Hall? And the guy says, 
Practice, practice, practice. Well, how do you become a disciple? How can you learn to disciple other people? It's called practice, practice, practice. Pastor, I can't pray at the beginning of the meeting. You can learn to pray. How do you learn to pray? You learn to pray by praying. You learn to study the Bible by what? By studying the Bible. You learn to serve by serving. You learn to worship by worshiping. And living the Christian life is like on-the-job training. You train yourself for godliness. We're going to take a look at four things that you need to consider this morning. Here's the very first thing. First of all, focus on what people see in you, not what they think of you. Now, consider that one for a moment. Focus on what people can see in you, in your heart, in your life, not what they think about you or of you. Now, Paul puts it this way in verse 12. He said, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech and love, in, in life and love and faith and in purity. He said, set an example. Let people see what's really in your heart. Albert Schweitzer said, example is not the main thing in influencing others. It is the only thing. See, in everything a leader does, or I would put it this way, in everything a disciple of Jesus Christ does, he or she really ought to be thinking a couple of things. Number one is, what kind of example am I setting for other people? What kind of message am I sending to those who are watching me? Now, Paul says this should be in, uh, in what you say, in what you do, how you treat other people, how you relate to God, what kind of attitude do you have towards sin and holiness in your speech, in your life, in your love, your faith and purity. Now, some of you are pretty much into what we would call social media these days. You know, one way social media has changed communication uh, is that in the past years, when you express an opinion, um, only a handful of people might actually hear your opinion. But today, thanks to things like Facebook and Twitter, you can express an opinion, and who knows, 200, 300, 400, 500 people or more can read it. So everyone involved in social media, whether it's texting or group texting or Facebooking or anything else like that, needs to give some serious thought about what kind of example that they're setting. We need to think about not only what we do on Facebook or Twitter, but what kind of impression do we make in everything we do? I mentioned last week, you know, uh, a lot of people expect the church to raise their children for them. You know, we're going to send them to Sunday school for you, so you can teach them all about Jesus. We're going to send them to confirmation so we, you can teach them all about Luther's small catechism. We're going to send them to youth groups so, you know, Katie can teach them more about Jesus. But that's only one hour or two hours or maybe three hours at best. The question is, what are you doing at home? Moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, the rest of the church to model that same behavior. 
I mean, how does it work if somebody in church or Sunday school or Bible class talks about thou shalt not commit adultery, sex outside the marriage relationship, and they see you practicing it? It unravels one hour of teaching. It says, be an example in speech, life, love, faith, purity. We're called to be examples. We are not called to be critics. We are not called to be pundits. We are not called to be outside observers. But like Albert Schweitzer also said, example, or my life, is an argument. I like that. My life is an argument. I I stand for what I believe in. When I was teaching high school, our principal, at the end of every week on Friday, he'd have a message. He said something to me that always struck me as kind of trite, but as I've grown older, I've come to appreciate it. He said, uh, always take the hard right against the easy wrong. It's easy to live in this world today. You'll fit in, you'll be like everybody else. What's hard is taking that hard right against stuff that is just so easy. Paul said to Timothy in verse 13, Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Now, we really don't know how young Timothy was. Some people say he may have been a teenager in his 20s, maybe early 30s. But he was faced with the responsibility of pastoring this really big church that had all kinds of problems, probably with a whole bunch of people who were older than he was. And from other things, Paul said, maybe Pastor Timothy, if you will, was not nearly as assertive or as forthright or bold as he needed to be. See, for Timothy, age seemed to be an obstacle. That's why Paul said, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. Now, if Paul were going to talk to each of you individually today, I'm hiding back to Vicky, what would he say? Don't let anyone look down on you because... How would he finish that sentence to you? Don't let anyone look down on you because, what, you're too young? You're too old? You don't have enough education? You don't have enough experience? You don't have enough money? Uh, You had a kind of a shady past? I mean, what is the thing, what is that one thing that stands between you and the disciple that God calls you to be? And Paul, Paul would tell you, friends, forget about whatever it is and focus on being the example that God desires you to be. Let your life be an argument. Here's the second thing. Focus on the presence of the Word of God in your life. Paul says, devote yourself, in verse 12, to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and the teaching. Now, obviously, Timothy was a preacher and a teacher, so Paul said, keep on doing that. Keep on reading the Word. Keep on preaching the Word. Keep on teaching the Word. And really, for anybody who's not called to do that, some of you may say, well, I'm glad you're doing it. Well, okay, I'm called to do it, but that doesn't let you off the hook. For those of you who are not called to preach or teach the Word, your focus still should be on what? Reading the Word of God, listening to the Word of God as it's being taught and proclaimed. Now, I find it interesting. Paul said, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Now, we ought to be all reading our Bibles, that's for sure. Something I do every day. I I, I have a system I've gone through for years. Just read the Bible. Keep on reading the Bible. We ought to all be doing that. 
But we also ought to be publicly reading the Scriptures, which is exactly what we do. Why do we have somebody like Matt come forward today and read a whole chapter of the Bible? You know, if you come to all of these six messages, you will have had the entire book of 1 Timothy read aloud to you. And when we get finished with that, we're going to start a new message series called Urgent. And we are going to base it on four other letters in the Bible, and we're going to read every last word in those books, too. Now, don't get excited because they're like Second John, Third John, like that. They're about one page. But why is that important? It's because there's power in hearing the words read aloud. In, in fact, most of the New Testament letters that are written by Paul and other people were really written with that intention. It would come to a church and somebody would stand up and say, we got a letter from Paul. And he would stand up and he would read that aloud to everybody in the church and then they'd roll that scroll back up and they'd send it on to another church. See, there's something about hearing, hearing the Word of God that's different than just reading it. The spoken Word comes with power. Paul says in, in Romans 10:17, faith comes from what? Hearing the Word of God. So you just need to put yourself in a position where you can hear it. I'd also encourage, this is going to sound like a strange thing, I'd also encourage you to listen to a good Bible teacher. And I'm not talking about, you know, just coming to your church and hoping your pastor preaches in the Bible. I, I think you sometimes need to expose yourself to other people who are good Bible teachers. Preferably somebody who focused primarily on teaching the Word of God, you know, verse by verse or chapter by chapter or whatever. I'll tell you, one of my favorites, and I listen to this guy all the time, he's a Scottish preacher by the name of Alistair Begg. I love it. This guy is in the Word, and I need to hear the Word also preached and read and taught to me as well. 2 Timothy 3.16, if you go a book ahead, you're going to find Paul saying to Timothy, All Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. To anybody who has ever said, well, I don't know the answer. I'm afraid that I couldn't tell if people ask me. Well, there, there's your marching orders. It's all there. Read it. You got it. You know, everything you need in life is found right here in the Bible. In fact, I would go so far as to say there's enough wisdom just in the book of Proverbs to get you through most of life. Again, when I was a high school teacher, I had a box on my desk. It had a question mark on it, and I told the kids they could put any question they wanted to in that box during the course of the week. At the end of the week, we would pull it out, and we would see whether or not the Bible had anything to say about it. Now, I said, I had a warning. I mean, don't put in there what is the square root of 17. I mean, nothing dopey like that. You know, and, and every week we'd do that. We'd pull out a question, and the questions they had about life. And then we would talk about whether the Word has anything And I don't remember the Bible ever failing. I encourage you to be a student of the Word. Here's the third thing. Focus on using the gifts that God's given you. Verse 14. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Now, what was Timothy's gift? The answer is, I don't know. Um, Paul doesn't really talk about it, but no doubt it had something to do with his calling. 
had something to do with the fulfillment of his responsibilities. Now, this, this little Greek phrase, do not neglect, can also be translated as, as stop neglecting. He's saying, stop neglecting the gifts God's given you. Don't let anything stand in the way of the example you can be for other people or faithfully exercising God's gifts. That means don't worry about what other people think. Do what God has gifted you to do. Every last one of us here has something, something that can contribute to the kingdom of God and especially to a local body of believers. I mean, that's what I hear God saying today. You have a place to fit in. If you know what it is, got to find a way to use it. If you don't know where to fit in, you need to make a point of figuring out what that gift may be. And if you want to just a list to start with, I'll tell you something you can, buy, you can read this week. Grab your Bibles and read Romans chapter 12. When you're done with Romans chapter 12, read 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's pretty easy to remember. Chapter 12, 1 Corinthians, Romans. And there it describes the various gifts that God gives his people. And one thing all gifts have in common is that all the gifts benefit other people. And if you're currently not involved in some ministry of some kind to some other people in some way, I'd say figure out what it is and do it. Here's the fourth thing I would say today. Uh, Focus on staying focused. Focus on staying focused. Verses 15 and 16. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, I said before, you learn to pray by doing what? Praying. You learn to serve by what? Serving. You learn to worship by worshiping. You need to remember these things which are so very important in the early days of your Christian life. And what you learn in the early days of your Christian life are always going to be important. You know, I was watching the Rangers play yesterday afternoon. I was going back and forth. I watched the Little League World Series for a while. And, you know, being a baseball player myself up from high school through college, you know, one thing I know about baseball is you never get to the point where you don't need to stretch things before a game. You never reach the point where you don't have to have some sort of a warm-up. Uh, you don't really ever reach the point where you don't take batting practice. Uh, you, don't, you don't ever get to the point where you don't warm up on an honest-to-goodness mound. There are certain fundamentals of preparation that never, ever end for a player. And I'd say in the same way, Christians never get to the point where the basics of the Christian life are unnecessary. I mean, don't ever allow yourself, you know, to say in the back of your mind, well, I've done this long enough. I've done this long enough. No. Reading the Bible, praying, worship, service, these are the basics that never, ever go away. We'll never get to the point where we no longer need to forgive people. Uh, We never get to the point where we no longer have to love our enemies. We're never going to get to the point where we stop serving with humility or giving sacrificially or walking obediently. But still, isn't it? It's it's still easy for us to lose focus, isn't it? Maybe you still remember what I said about C.S. Lewis and that Christianity 
and. Some preachers and some churches lose sight of the Word of God and start preaching politics. Some preachers, some churches lose sight of their call to serve other people and instead only take care of themselves and practice kind of a me-centered religion. Some preachers, some churches lose sight of the command that they are to be an example and instead they just kind of hunker down in their little holy huddles every Sunday and point their fingers at everybody else. That's why we need to stay focused on staying focused on what really matters. Paul says, watch your life and doctrine closely. It all comes back to being a follower of Jesus. Keeping him at the center of our faith, that's where our focus needs to be. See, the Christian life, a disciple, is really on-the-job training. And the training never, ever ends. You know, some people, for example, think that confirmation equals graduation. No, confirmation is only the beginning. You know, some people think that when somebody says, I now pronounce you man and wife, husband and wife, that all your troubles are going to disappear. No, now the job begins. Same way with the Christian life. Just like an athlete goes to the gym, goes through the same reps to train himself for competition, we go into the world and we practice all those things that God has called us to do in order to prepare ourselves to do more of what he's called us to do. But I'd say, friends, if you came here today and for some reason you didn't realize it before, maybe you should realize it now, you are in training. You might not be a perfect example in all areas, but you're in training to become a godly example. You might not yet have conquered the deepest theological truths of Scripture, but you're in training right now to become a person who knows and loves and lives the Word. You might not be making full use of all of your gifts that God has given you, but right now you're in training to grow and build and nurture those gifts so that you can serve in Jesus' name. How do you do it? Let me just repeat it one more time. You stay focused on the basic habits of the disciples' life. Prayer, Bible study, worship, service, day after day, year after year, decade after decade. And you do this by staying focused on the center of your faith. And that's Jesus Christ. May God bless it for his name's sake. Amen.